Welcome to episode 372 with my guest, Daisy. Uh, this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. My name, uh, if you need to know, I'd, I'd rather not uh, share it until we get to know each other a little bit better. Maybe at the end of the episode, I'll, I'll, you know, what the fuck. My name is Paul Gilmartin, and I am the host of this, uh, I know what the, what this tone is that I've that I've adopted. It 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 kind of sincere and creepy at the same time. Um, the mental illness happy hour. I was saying, <laughs> I like to. I love digging a big hole right out of the gate and seeing who hangs on. Uh, this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist or a mental health professional. Uh, it's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod. MetalPod is also what you can follow me at on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Um, you will not be seeing pictures of my lunch. Uh, I do not understand that uh, whole thing. Uh, I would never assume that somebody wants to see a picture of my Reuben sandwich. That sounded dirty. Uh, yeah. But, um, boy, have I, have I gone down the rabbit hole? If this was a flow chart on a graph, the start of the show right now, it would be, it would be like off the chart to the right. It would just be dribbling. It's <laughs> just moving. Um, I want to kick things off with a, uh, survey. This is an awful moment filled out by, uh, a woman who calls herself the once token virgin. And she writes, I have bipolar 2 and narcolepsy. In 2012, during a time of excessive stress, I had lost out on my ideal job. My grandma was dying, and I was helping take care of her, and I would broken up with my long-term boyfriend. I wound up having a mixed episode that swung into derealization when, meeting up at a park, my boyfriend wouldn't take me back. It was what my hypomanic mind had been focusing on for about a month, so I was pretty tore up about it. I went into the park bathroom and and then in parentheses, poorly, tried to hang myself with my leather belt. I tried two times, then came out and asked the ex to take me home. Once there, I tried to hang myself twice more in the upstairs bathroom. I finally came to and told my dad in his office across the hall that I was trying to kill myself. He replied, well, that's a stupid idea. I would say, no, that's, that is a heartbreaking sign that your daughter feels alone with her pain. You choosing to be a parent? That's a stupid idea. Uh, this is just an excerpt from a shame and secret survey that I wanted to read because I think one of the things I've learned doing this podcast is how complex people can be, how they can have both darkness and light inside them. And it's one of the biggest mind fucks is when you are raised in a household where there's not consistency from a parent. And it's, um, I think, exemplified. Many things, I think, are exemplified in this little excerpt from this survey. But this was filled out by 
And by the way, if you guys have never filled out the surveys, please go to, please go to the website. Um, they're a big part of the show. You fill them out anonymously. We don't even gather your IP address. So people share their deepest, darkest thoughts, things that they've done, things that have happened to them. And it's a really, uh, really important part of, uh, contributing to the show. And there's about a dozen different surveys you can take. This survey happens to be the Shame and Secret survey. And it was filled out by a woman who calls herself just another name. And, um, to the question, have you ever been physically or emotionally abused? Uh, she writes, not sure. Um, <laughs> I would say this is definitely a physical or emotional abuse, but, um, my mother had me very young and was a single parent from the get-go. For the first 10 years of my life, I was absolutely terrified of her. She could get angry at the drop of a hat, and you never really knew what would set her off. One time, she made herself a burger and discovered that we didn't have any ketchup. She tore the kitchen apart in a rage. I mean, literally threw things out of drawers, kicked in cabinet doors, the works. I was probably around seven years old and was so scared, I called my aunt to come pick me up. When she did and saw what my mom was doing, she immediately packed me a bag and took me to her house. As we were leaving, I remember my aunt saying something to her probably about us leaving, and my mom didn't even look at us or respond. I also remember an incident where I peed my pants at the grocery store. My mom got so mad at me, she tore the bathroom stall door off its hinges while she was screaming at me. I just kept crying and apologizing over and over, but she wouldn't stop yelling. Someone overheard the commotion, and eventually a security guard escorted us out of the store. On the drive home, my mom did apologize for acting the way she did, but I still hadn't stopped crying and couldn't even look at her. I refused to speak to her for two days. I got slapped and spanked and even hit with a belt a few times, but none of those things affected me as much as watching my mom turn into this crazy rage monster. And then to the question, any positive experiences with the abusive person? Um, this is what she wrote, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to, to read her survey. Um, of course, there were positive experiences. Despite my childhood being full of terror, it was also full of a lot of good. My mother worked her ass off to provide for me and make sure I didn't want for anything. Looking back, I think that might have been part of the problem. She was working 60-hour weeks plus overtime so I could attend the best private schools, do any extracurricular activities I wanted, and so we could live in an upper-class neighborhood so I wouldn't be exposed to the same poverty she was. She was stressed, alone, and came from a physically abusive and emotionally neglectful household, so she didn't know how to process any emotions in a healthy way. She was just doing the best she could with what she had. On the nights she would make it home before I went to bed, she would read me a story and put on Donna Summer's Last Dance, and we'd sing into hairbrushes while dancing around in our pajamas. I still, to this day, can't listen to that song without crying, because those moments meant so much to me. Nowadays, my mother and I are extremely close. We moved countries when I was 11. She got a less demanding job and was able to finally start enjoying life and motherhood for the first time. I still have a little lingering resentment for how she was, but the older I got, the more I relate and can forgive. What a what an unbelievable example, not only of uh, how complex people can be, but um, how a relationship can be repaired. Um, if if one or both people are are willing to change. And um, 
Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That was really moving. Um, I just like it. any survey that has a mention of a disco song in it. Um, this is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself BPD, bored, panicked, delirious. And she's actually a teenager. And describing her depression, she writes, constantly grieving the person I could have been. That one hit me like a brick between the eyes. I was like, yes, that's exactly it. It's this feeling of society abandoning abandoning you, not consciously, but just like you're being left behind. It's like everybody got gasoline in their tank and and you didn't. About experiencing uh, borderline personality disorder, she writes, if I were a dog, I'd be a kindly, happy Labrador that bites when you try to touch it. Thank you for that. This is an awful moment filled out by a uh, woman who calls herself Two Scoops, and she writes, Following 18 hours of battling food poisoning on the trip home from a week in Mexico, I came home to find out my best friend's fiancé had cheated on her eight months before their wedding. Uncomfortable with other people's emotions, I made her a strong drink and spent the day by the pool reassuring her the sun would still shine in the morning. In an effort to get some food in her stomach, I fed her a yogurt smoothie I found in the fridge. She took a deep swig and said, disgusting, ew, it's lumpy. I checked the expiration date, which was seven months prior. We broke out into deep belly aching, can't breathe laughter until we cried. After a day of feeling like her world had come crashing down and seeing her laugh over some lumpy yogurt, the weight of life seemed to be just a little bit lighter. I love that. I love that. It's, it's, I think we're all looking for our lumpy yogurt. And yes, I would like that on my headstone. This is filled out by, um, quite a lot of, uh, almost all of these surveys are filled out by, uh, women. I guess all the males are, uh, I feel abandoned by the male population. This is filled out by Maggie, and a snapshot. Her, her struggles are depression, anxiety, and codependency, and uh, giving us a uh, snapshot from her life. She writes, I'm stuck in traffic, singing along at the top of my lungs to the Hamilton soundtrack, feeling great when it hits me. This isn't a good mood. It's mania. I sometimes wonder about that. Like, you know when you time your caffeine perfectly, and, like, I never sing out loud, but maybe a couple of times a month, I'll be in traffic, and I'll just start belting, horribly, belting out a song, and think to myself, what must it be like to be somebody that has this kind of joy every day, somebody that sings every day? And, like, when you see a group of teenage girls or junior high girls together and they're just they're singing and they're being silly and it's like there's this i don't know there's this energy that i have experienced maybe 20 times in my life of just 
uh, no self-consciousness and can't contain energy. And, and it feels so fucking good when you get it. And I'm, I'm so envious of people that have that all the time. But then I think when that turns on the people that have that all the time, it's fucking ugly. When that, when that roller coaster comes down from that high sometimes, uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to have the other part of being a teenage girl, um, writing, writing the poetry and, uh, all of that. That was an incredibly broad, uh, swipe of the brush, but, um, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself E is for elephant and about her anxiety. She writes, Hey, I'm in a pretty good mood today. Clearly that can't be right. Time to catalog every single stupid thing I've done since kindergarten. Why do you stop there though? Why wouldn't you go back to nursery school? Because you were a fucking idiot in nursery school. I, I know we've never met, but word has gotten back to me. And you should, you should be ashamed of this, the shit you did in nursery school. How far back? I wonder how far back do some people ruminate with shame about something they did or said? Like for me, I don't think it's anything before maybe early grade school but as as far as like burning shame i think most of that stuff is like adult adulthood so that's what i'm saying to the kids out there <laughs> you think you're ashamed now wait till you become an adult and you'll know what real shame feels like um this is filled out by same same uh, survey filled out by a woman who calls herself. I think I talk too much about myself and about her anxiety. She writes anxious about not being invited to a social event, then getting invited and becoming anxious about going. Fantastic! Oh, I so get that. Well, what's traffic going to be like? That's always the first place I go to. What what freeway is going to be? What time of day is that going to be? Oh, I can't do that. I might be on there for three hours. What if there's an earthquake and I don't have water? Then I am trapped in my car and I die of thirst. I'm just like a bug roasting in a glass case. <laughs> and nobody's going to help me because I'm on my own. <laughs> this is a happy moment filled out by Pooey. And she writes, today I had my first therapy session on BetterHelp.com. My therapist seemed to understand me totally. She said to me, everything you are feeling is completely normal. It almost brought tears to my eyes. Me, a girl that has had such bad anxiety attacks that she yells and screams uncontrollably. I'm normal. How fucking cool is that? There, there are no feelings that, that aren't universal you know it's what we do with them and that's what i think is is and obviously yeah this is a lead-in to our sponsor betterhelp.com but uh, one of the things that i've learned in therapy is there are no unhealthy feelings there's just healthy or unhealthy ways of expressing them and it was a relief to me too uh, when i first started going to therapy realizing that the things that i think and feel are no reflection of who i am as a person our, our character is defined by what we do with our thoughts and our 
and our feelings. And um, I love BetterHelp.com, love my therapist. I've been going there for a year and a half, and um, we are we're working on some good shit together, man. Um, I feel really safe with her, and she gets me. And um, I feel um, I feel I don't know safe the right word. I I feel like I am like I can let go because she knows what she's doing, and uh, it's nice to just let just spill my shit for forty five minutes and let go and have an objective, informed, compassionate person help me sort it out. So if you want to check it out, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they uh, know that you came from our podcast. Uh, So betterhelp.com slash mental. uh, Complete a questionnaire, and then you get matched with a betterhelp.com counselor, and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you, and you've got to be over 18. Um, Check it out. This is a happy moment. Um... No, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Pillow Drool Stain. Um, And about her depression, she writes, Dead Static Television Channel. That is spot on. About her love addiction. He says, I love you. I think, yuck, gross. That's a part of love addiction that a lot of people don't, um, aren't aware of. Because they think it's only about being enamored or obsessed with somebody, but it's um, that's that's how the the love addict is for the person who's love avoidant. But then when the person decides they are into you and you're a love addict, that's the response is. Ooh, something has changed. I'm not attracted to them anymore. My skin is crawling. I got to get the fuck out of here. A snapshot from her life, sitting in the back seat when my parents are driving to the grocery store, and my father turns to my mother and says, why is she here? That is so fucked up. That is so fucked up. He should get together with the other dad that that said that's a stupid idea, and they should start a, a poker night, just shitty dad poker night. Uh... And then this is an awful moment filled out by Betty Boo, and she writes, I've been struggling with my self-esteem recently, dealing with constant thoughts about how I'm not smart enough or competent enough to do my job, and that everyone around me is hugely disappointed and feels let down by my incompetence. Regardless of whether it's true, the obsessive thoughts have been giving me minor panic attacks on a regular basis. Anyway, the other day, our CEO was supposed to write me a letter of recommendation for an important project. In the end, she was called to a meeting, so I was instructed to write it on her behalf and, quote, make it convincing. I ended up sitting in an empty office with tears streaming down my face, writing about how brilliant, committed, and extraordinarily bright I am, feeling that every word was a lie but having to carry on regardless. It was like the strangest form of therapy ever. By the end, I was almost laughing as I concluded that anyone would be lucky to have me on their team. While in my head, I've been telling myself that I was the biggest loser in the world. I just hope no one ever reads this letter back to me. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. 
was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom, people pleasing, dread, silent, invisible, just wailing, stuck in the grip of the obsession, derealization, depersonalization, the suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get, you know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scarface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, it comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I've never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. And I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> I'm here with uh, Daisy, and that's a pseudonym, um, because we uh, we don't want her domestically abusive ex, um, who's also, would you say, a stalker? Um, yes, at, not currently. But. Okay, but we don't. Uh, yes, just to for you to be safer and to share more freely, we're going to call you Daisy. And um, you're an artist in multiple mediums, um, very successful. Um, you were raised Mormon. Yes. Uh, where would be a good place to, to start with your story? Um, I think, um, I guess Mormonism, because, yeah, I was raised Mormon. My parents converted to Mormonism just because they like were raised kind of both hectic parents and from the deep south and so their thought process is that like fancy people went to church and so then the missionaries knocked on their door and then they became mormon in other words to them mormonism was fancy or not fancy they just, they, like, as a couple wanted to join a religion, a church. And that was when my oldest sister was born. And so then the whole family has, is Mormon. So you've never known anything other otherwise? Yeah, they were, I was They were Mormon born. when you were born. Yeah. Um, what kind of people were your parents? Um, my mom is definitely, um, not nice to me. <laughs> like... <laughs> Just a very, like, she had her own issues. Like, she was a fraternal twin, and she was, like, not the cuter twin. So she, like, hated, like, I feel like she resents that I'm, like, like, I've been a professional model actress. So I feel like she always kind of was, like, this, your looks are not going to, like, last you your whole life. Or just really kind of, like, mean about it all. And she was closer to my sister and she just didn't relate to me. And I was the youngest and of five children. And there's like 19 years between me and my oldest sister. Wow, that's quite a span. Yeah. And so it was basically like by the end of it, they're just like, can you please just... I felt like they were just over having kids or just over parenting and just in survival mode i hear that a lot about uh people that are yeah and and the the kids further on down it's like pretty much just come home in one piece yeah i mean it was a weird 
thing because it was like I was a Mormon girl and it was like you need to be a virgin and not do drugs, not drinking and um, very like strict. But because my my dad had been laid off most of my teen years, my and my mom at 50 had to like find a career and make money and support the family. So I totally identify with her, and I think she's really strong for that. But, like, I left home at 17 because she, like, freaked out because she thought I was, you know... She went to, you know, she just... She thought you were wild or what? Yeah, she thought I was, like, just down the wrong path or something. So. Did, she, did she have evidence to support that, or was it just... Um. Well, I worked in a music venue since I was like 14 15 years old and so i worked downtown so i was working all the time um so i had like the influence of kind of artistic people that weren't like mormon but i played like i would go to church and i would go to seminary and i would go to everything and then i would go to you know these shows at in arizona it's like the first stop from la and I was the runner for the promoters, and I was runner like w- and worked for the owners. And my the owner, one of the owners, was like an ex Hell's Angel, and you know it was like crazy. And downtown Tucson is, you know, there's a Greyhound station next to a college next to like all the bars, so it was like a hotbed. And it's like the first city up from Mexico, so it's like you got migrant workers and burnout hippies and cowboys and so it's like i kind of had like one life downtown and one life at home what were there things that that fed your soul about mormonism did do you have did you have any good experiences being a part of the church or was it all just kind of hit you and I mean, bounced off no, I like I totally believed in it and it wasn't until I was like 20 that I like I got raped at 20 and I was just like I have tried to be such a good girl like and you're letting this happen to me. And so then I kind of just was like oh, fuck it I'll do whatever, but I was very conflicted because it's everyone was always saying like you must be a bad girl, you know, and there'd be like girls in my seminary class giving head in the parking lot and I was a virgin like totally not trying to be with any dudes but I don't know if it's because like the way I looked or the way like the way I, I or I liked the arts and I was hung out downtown you're you're not trying to say that you brought it on yourself please tell me that you're not trying to say I didn't that. bring it on myself okay no. it was just it sounded like you were starting to go down that path no. all right Am I way off base by saying that it sounded like you were at least saying that about your old self that you brought that you believed that you believed that somehow you brought it on yourself because of you know the people you were mixing with. I well, I just look. It's it's. Um, I know you don't believe that now, but I guess what I'm asking is, did you when believe I was, that when I was younger? I was just, I just. I had two very, 
I think it's really funny because I still feel like I have the same thing. I have two very different pictures of my life. I had a like a very picture of my life where I was like getting married and having children and going to be like the Mormon wife and it would be really cool and go to college, go to the BYU. And then I also had, you know, like the total actress dream of I'll be on the red carpet, but I'll wear because you're not allowed to wear um, shorts like tank tops as a Mormon. And I'll be like, I'll wear modest dresses on the red carpet. I want to be in movies. You know, so I just had a very definite, like, I love entertainment. I love the arts. But there's no room for that. Everything's very vanilla. And it's very, you know. If you're going to go into the arts, you're going to be the Osmonds. Yeah. <laughs> Serious. Um, are you comfortable talking about... Um, the rape? Yeah, the rape. Um, basically, I I was... It was crazy, because I left home at 17, and I was, like, a virgin. Did you did you leave under uh, quarrelsome circumstances? Yeah. My mom basically flipped out. I was running hip-hop shows in downtown for an all-ages club that was no drugs no alcohol like most parents would be like super proud i was like on this mayor's council like like teen council and all these really positive things but because it wasn't within the church's domain i was going i was wild and crazy so um I had convinced my parents that I was super smart, and so I made them sign up for these classes where I took more classes. So when my senior year, I had too many credits to just go into my senior class, but I was one credit away from graduating when I was a junior. So I just had to get one more credit, like that first. So you had a ton of free time your senior year. Well, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't, didn't go to go. Call, I didn't go to high school because I was just like I was going to graduate early, and my mom just like flipped her shit and she um, was like, "You're dropout and you're this," and within one day I was like, "I have to go downtown. I have a show. Like I'm getting paid for this," and so she like chased me to the show i like went out the back door then she started threatening me like she's gonna like report the car stolen and so i just like put everything in a garbage bag or i went like i like i put all of my clothes in a garbage bag and i left the house and and then i had worked at a runaway center not worked out there but um i did a play like rehearsed a issue-based play about rape and molestation. Really? Which is hilarious. It was an issue-based play where we tour around to schools and we would, like, play out these incidents. And at the end of the the uh, play, we would sit and listen to, like, students coming. So I worked... So I went to the Runaway Center because they knew I... They knew me from rehearsing there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, my mom's going crazy. And they were like, okay, we'll sign these papers. Like, we can help you get, like emancipated yeah and so i just like worked the system kind of and just kind of made my parents and then, chill this, out. And then this terrible thing happened how how soon after that couple years it was a couple years it was i but you were living on your own at, I, at, at that point i left yeah i left to i left home when i was 17 i lived in a ymca building downtown paid like 200 dollars for a room like a month it was and then I moved to LA when I was right when I turned 18. I had kind of started hanging out with a guy in Tucson. 
he started coming out to LA, but I was still like going to church on Sunday, still trying to like, like be a virgin, like don't touch me, don't do anything. Then he like would stay with me a lot in LA and then he moved down to Mexico and I was totally like in love with him. But, um, he was frustrated with me cause I wouldn't have sex with him and I wouldn't <laughs> do anything with him. Because I was like this really conflicted Mormon girl. Um, what ended up happening was he got coked out and drunk, and I locked myself in a bathroom and he knocked on the door and raped me. It was great. <laughs> wow. Wow. And so then I was like so freaked out that I like was like, "Can I please leave like tomorrow?" And so I never called the cops or anything because it was like in Mexico. It's my word against him. I was already so ashamed just for like even going to Mexico and um I just felt really powerless and didn't really say anything to anyone. I can I can't imagine how um untethered and and uh helpless. Yeah. He must have felt as you talk about this you, you seem one of two things like you've completely processed it <laughs> and you're cool with it or there has to be a certain amount of detachment from it because you don't want to i've been through feel. a lot of therapy i've been through a lot of therapy and i and i always you know say i was raped when i was 20 because it definitely well from being in that issue basically i knew it was rape and and I started self-harming after, like, it started coming out, like, it was a few years I was, like, self-harming, like, just, like, I would sort of raise it, yeah, I would mm. cut, like, but because I modeled, I would only cut, like, around my thighs and, like, under, like, your underwear area, so no one would see, so I knew that it was... It was weird. I processed it very weird. It, it was. I can see how it, like, it all happened. Basically, I came back from Mexico. My two roommates had were Mormon. They both got engaged. I didn't have enough money to get into another apartment. I call my parents. I'm like, hey, I, <laughs> I have no money. I'm gonna have nowhere to live. And they're like, well, come home. And I'm like, fuck no. And and, I, you, and you did not share with them that, that no. you had been raped. Was it because you thought that they would not be supportive and they would blame you? They are loving, but I feel they're very detached. I think they're from a different generation. It's kind of like having your grandparents raise you. Um, and yeah, so basically when that happened, I was always into writing poetry. So I was writing a lot of poetry and... Everything that I wanted to do, I just did. So I like moved into my car. I started auditioning for TV commercials. I started a band through music. I processed a lot. Like I, I listened to my first record, and all I'm like, it just sounds like a bunch of rape songs. Or like, <laughs> like I was wrong and you were not. Like I was young and you were wrong, and like just stupid shit like that. But it helped you process it for sure. Yeah. But I just like I listen I listen to the music and I'm just like 
That just sounds like a bunch of rape poems. You know, everybody's first six rape songs are usually bad. <laughs> you know, you just got to keep working on those rape yeah, songs, you know, make a career out of it. Um, so as you talk about that event, I guess what I'm curious about is today, how do you feel when when you when you talk about it, do, do you feel, um, does it bring up feelings in you or does it just feel like something that's kind of distant and it feels so long ago. It feels so long ago and it's, I feel recently like I had acupuncture and all of this crazy, like, my jaw locked up. My hands, like, froze up. I was crying in my boyfriend's arms. I was, like, having cramps going up and down my body. And it was because it was, like, unlocking some of the, the injuries trauma. that I had from the domestic abuse. I feel like I just always have a weird, complicated story with guys. It's not, you know, there's always something. And... And, uh, what do you attribute it to? I feel like I didn't, like, because I was raised Mormon and there was, I mean, with my, like, my older sister was seven years older than me and she was in high school and she was having issues with guys and she'd be like, guys are horrible. No, don't kiss, don't French kiss a guy until you're 16. So I didn't French kiss a guy until I was 16 years old and, like, literally got badgered all through junior high and high school and i just don't feel like i got that training of like this is how you date this is how da, 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 da. everything was always like a secret like i couldn't have a boyfriend and um and then like the mormon guys would have crushes on me and then i wouldn't um like them back and so they blow up my mailbox over and over again <laughs> and my dad would make me pay for the mailbox that's what they do instead of masturbating they blow up mailboxes <laughs> and so, something's got to give yeah it's just they, yeah um is there anything else from from that time period that you'd like to share because the i what i really want to the the focus to be um, was the domestic the, the the domestic violence because it um, was so crazy i didn't know this shit could happen to me i just i had nice i mean okay the rape happened then i had like a nice guitar boyfriend then i dated a photographer for a long time who was super sweet just such a sweet 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 guy like to this day, is just a really sweet guy. So your your history isn't littered with bad choices in men. No, I mean, and I w and my dad is the best, sweetest guy. Um, and I just feel I think it's I don't know if I I just didn't know like I didn't know the signs of what walking down this path of you know. Well, the, losing control or just which is why i think your story is so is, is so important because i think people have an image in their mind when they think of uh domestic abuse they think um you know lower income um uh, your dad abused you so you're your dad abused abuse. you right um you know it's a woman who has very little uh Options. L leverage with men or options or, or whatever. And um, because your story doesn't 
uh, fit that mold. And I would imagine most stories don't uh, necessarily fit that that mold, or at least a lot of stories don't. Um, where where to start? Where okay. to, where to start? I had been nominated for a big award, like nationwide on TV award, and it was like 2012-ish, and I was totally riding high on life, but I had recently broken up with my very long-term boyfriend because he wouldn't, because I wanted to get married, and we've been dating for, like, on and off for a long time, and I was just like, he's never going to get married. Like, I'm not going to invest more of my time with someone who doesn't want a commitment. Okay? That's, like, a healthy thing, mm-hmm. right? Boundaries, yeah. right? So then, here comes this guy that I, that I knew from around, and I should have known because well i'm anonymous so i can say anything he's because i had done like drugs with him at his like big mansion in the hills one time and i like because i moved to la as a really young girl i didn't want my one goal in la was to never be a co-core so i've always (laughs) i've always I've always really stayed away from... By the way, I love the negative goal. The goal to not be something. (laughs) Those are achievable. You know, my goal has always been to not stab 50 people at a bus stop. And to this day, I have made my dreams come true. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) He finds out that I break up with my ex. And he... Is like, let's go to dinner. And so we go to dinner and he, before we even got the drinks, he's like, we're going to date. Like, we should date. It was kind of like, it didn't stop. It was, there was no getting off. How, how did you, how did the, the, like, the, abuse, the abuse stuff, begin? He made me feel like I was saving him in a way because when we were together, he was like, he had lost his position. Like, they had put him on timeout because he was so crazy. He wouldn't do drugs when he was with me. Like, we'd only drink. And um, he was just always constantly making me feel like I was helping him or making and did him you like, a better person. Did you like that feeling? Yeah, because I feel like with me, my family and everyone always makes me feel like I'm the bad girl or something. So it felt good to be... I, I would always say, if only you could act right. If you could just act right. And I could just... He had so much opportunity and so much energy and we could do anything. It's like, we could do anything. But then it, there would always just be the control and the just immaturity and all of that would just derail it always. He was just so like, I love you. I love you. I fucking love you. You know, just so passionate about me when I had been dating this guy for a long time and he barely said, I love you. And and, didn't want to marry you. And didn't want to marry me. And here's this guy who's like, you know, flying with me everywhere. We're going to all this events and all these things and he can he can ride with me when my ex i was always solo because i would be flown for because it's my job and he would be doing his own thing and he'd just be like go do your thing so here's someone who's like we're two powerhouses together 
Um, I, I see now. I, I, I'm now beginning to understand that it was the, uh, the attention, uh, that he was lavishing on you as well and, and building you up, building, building you up, which is textbook fucking abuse. Uh, abuser pattern is to build the person up at, before you begin to isolate control and, and, oh, yeah. and chop them down. <sighs> Oh, I, it's so crazy. He would always poke me in the ass all the time. Like, be walking around and poke me in the ass. I'd be like, stop it. Like, and I'm like, I will break up with you just because you're poking me like a child and I'm an adult and I'm asking you to not do this and you do it. And he'd do it all the time. And I'm like, what was he doing it for? What did- just for his own amusement. Just, because he's a child like, mm-hmm. and and it's just do it and that's boundaries <laughs> not listening to me like doing something over and over and over just to drive me mad um and then the big thing that happened was he had an apartment in hollywood and i had an apartment in venice beach and he he had just on a monday night drank two went through two bottles of wine and then was like wanted to have sex with me i didn't want to have sex with him he started like being like get the fuck out get the fuck out and i'm like crying and i just was like okay i'll just sleep on the couch and he's like no get the fuck out and i was like i can't find my keys to my apartment it's three in the morning and if you don't live in los angeles it's almost an hour drive, 45 minute drive from Hollywood to Venice Beach. He kicked me out in three in the morning with no keys to my my apartment. And I didn't know if my roommates were home or anything. So for me, I was like, deal breaker. Fuck you. Like, can you like, I don't want to <laughs> like. And he, and he was drinking two bottles of wine. I mean, was Clearly, that wasn't the first time this guy was um, getting loaded to a degree that wasn't uh, normal, right? Yeah, no, no, no. So, was was that a red flag for you, the amount that he would drink and the drugs that he was doing? Or was it, did you just attribute it to, uh, oh, We're rock stars. I see. We're fucking rock stars. We deserve champagne. We deserve, you know, whatever. We're at whatever festivals. We're, like, we're rock stars. He kicked me out in the middle of the night. And then he, I took a taxi back to my apartment. Luckily, my roommate was home. He started calling my... There, so I lived in an apartment with two guys. One guy was kind of like a swarmy promoter guy that moved in. And he was 37 or something. And another guy, we had lived... Me and him had been in the house together for a while. This guy knew that my boyfriend had a successful company, was in, you know, this industry that he wanted to be in so he the my roommate let's call him q or whatever he put himself very closely with me would give me relationship advice all of this 
and then put himself very close with the boyfriend. The ex. The ex-boyfriend. So this guy was playing. Oh. This is the thing that tripped me out so bad. Because I'm... When someone... Like, when you have a boyfriend and someone does something bad to you. Like, I thought... Like, when he... the first, Like, he gave me a black eye. So I thought, okay, he, he gave me a black eye. Your My boyfriend gave me a black eye. I thought... Now everyone will be like, okay, he did it. He, like, not just the emotional abuse now. Now it's like I have physical abuse. Now isn't this the part of, like, the TV movie where everyone, like, bonds together and hugs you and is, like, X's out that guy? No. No fucking way. It's so... What I learned is that people don't want to get involved. Nobody gives a fuck. The police don't give a fuck. People don't give a fuck. Maybe your family will give a fuck, but it's all up to you, the person, to get the fuck out. If your boyfriend or someone you love is verbally or physically abusing you, no one will help you except for you because it's it's not the, even a domestic uh, abuse shelter i mean but the thing even me i i got back with him multiple times and the thing is is which i understand is very common because the the because it's, the abuser t- is contrite and they apologize and I'm and so I'm never so, going to do it again. The next day he was like he he gave me his car. He he didn't give me his car, but he's like use my car, give me $2000 in cash and was like I'm so sorry, I'll never I'm stopping. I'm not drinking anymore. Blamed it on the booze. Mhm. And how many times did you believe his lies how many times did he abuse you i mean psychologically abused me i mean last august after he had given me whiplash in february how did he give you whiplash he pissed on my face and then when i was in the shower trying to get his piss off my face like I was getting out of like I was he was throwing my clothes in the shower and I was trying to get out and so then he like grabbed me by the hair so basically grabbing me by the head and then I thought he was gonna smash my face into the bathroom counter but he just took me down to the floor and I'm like naked (laughs) and like it was crazy so I have like a permanent issue with my neck uh, so many questions <laughs> so many questions um this was towards the tail end did you leave him shortly after this it is so i'm embarrassed it's it played out i mean it's almost it was from start to finish it played out for almost two years but there was you know i break up with him for two months and then i would and then I broke, I got a restraining order on him, which he avoided. And I didn't talk to him for seven months. And then we got together for three months. And within the three months, 
I moved out of my apartment, signed a lease with him, got engaged, and then got whiplash within 90 days. Why? Help walk me through the decision after having a restraining order out on somebody to get back, not only get back together with them, but to get engaged. Had he just convinced you that he was a changed person? I felt I had dated, I had left, I had went to New York City and I had been dating other guys and one guy kind of fucked around on me, like fucked with my head some more, but it was more just, you know, just we're in New York City, I'm dating a bunch of people and I just was so frustrated, it was like nobody loves me, but I know if I call this guy, he'll jump. He'll jump on a plane. He'll, and so it was Once kind again, of a power thing for me too. It's so much drama, and then the people around, and it sours the people around you. It sours. I mean, so I then introduced him to my friends in New York City. So then, when he pissed on my face and gave me whiplash, and I told my friends in New York. Guess who he goes, hey, so-and-so, do you want a penthouse for your birthday party? Like, I'm in New York, and they're all party girls, so they're just like, it's cool. So then that group of friends that I had went and made friends with outside of all the friends in These sound like terrible fucking friends. They're not my friends anymore. I mean, that. If I saw it in a movie, I, I I would think, oh, that's a bit of a stereotype of the shallow L.A. New York party scene. But I guess it's not. It it really is that that grotesque. One of them just had a seizure, and she's twenty five. So it's the dr- the amount of drugs and partying and whatever. It's and the all... attraction to money. Oh, it's it's like a it's a. It's like a game. It's like who can date the billionaire. It's real. I hired a private detective to give him, serve him his restraining order because it's hard to get a restraining order in Los Angeles. It's not an easy thing. You need uh, definitely if you're going through anything where you're getting abused, call the cops every fucking time. Every time he won't let you leave the room or every time he's like screaming at you, call the cops because the more records they have of you reporting him, the more you have proof that it's not just, you know, a silly fight between two people. Um, and you know, whatever I had a restraining order, I got a thing. He never got served. And you know what? The, the wearing out of just, he's never going to go away. He loves me. Maybe things will be different this time. Like there are, there are reasons that I loved him. It's addiction. That is total love addiction. And the thing that I hate about the term love addiction is it's not love. And I know you know that, but for lack of a better word, I guess that's why everybody calls it love addiction. But um, it's the furthest thing from from love you know it should be neediness addiction i don't think i've been addicted to a drug 
like that. Like, it was literally like everyone around me hates me. Like, I was sneaking around, talking to him. Like, it was just... People around you hated you because you were getting back together with this guy that they knew was bad news. They, it's just like you can't, it's like a drug addict. You can't trust them. I hate him. Now I love him. I hate him. He hits me. Now I'm with him. I can't even hang out with my friends because, you know, they don't trust me. So what, how, how were you able to finally break free? Because the thing you shared with me was before you, um, was before the break that you had. Then you got back together with him. You got engaged. And was the final straw the uh, urinating? <laughs> the pissing on my face and uh, yeah. giving me whiplash night? Yeah. That was a pretty, that was pretty much the topper. Um, basically, I think it was, he promised me that we would get married and it would be this whole thing. And so then to get engaged and for him to abuse me, it's just game on. It's just there's no more. It's, he's going to kill me. Like, I know that I'm crazy, but I knew that I've had relationships where they loved me. And it wasn't this, like, phonetic energy of just constant. Why do you, why do you think that you stayed for so long in that situation? I don't, like, I didn't feel like I stayed because I felt like I was constantly running away from him. Um, That's interesting. That's interesting. I never thought about it, but I suppose that's what the person, from the, because from the outside, you look stuck in that thing. But to you, it seems like, oh, you've escaped and now it's safe to come back. I've escaped and now it's safe to come back. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I just, if you could just act right, if you could just fucking act right. He, him or you? Yes, him. And I'm like, we just need to go to a therapist. So we went to a woman, just called her out of nowhere. We went to a therapist and she's like, you two need to stay away from each other. I'm like, okay, great. You hear that? We need to stay away from each other. Let's do that. He's like, no, therapist is not expensive enough. We need to, <laughs> we need to go to a more expensive therapist. What ended up happening was I showed up to the therapist that he had picked because it's all about control. And I showed up before the hand and I was like, look, this guy's been abusing me for a while. I need out. Like, I have a lease with this guy. I'm driving his car. I need, like, a head start. Please just tell him to stop calling me. Or, like, just give me, like, space. So she, in the session, negotiated, you know, she'll drive your car until she gets her car back from her parents. Uh, she'll, like, this is what will happen. Give her a month to think about things, and then you can guys can come back to therapy together. And I had um, started staying at my friend's immediately. I immediately started calling therapists, and then I had a neck injury, so I started going to Ralphing mm -hmm. to work to try and minimize the injury and then the therapist had recommended group therapy it was so amazing to see other people who i could listen to what was going on with them 
identify mm. with it. I just was so stuck on the story and going like around and around with all the promises and why is this, I can't believe this is happening. And they just are like, you're crazy. Like they reflected back to me how crazy I sounded. And they were all these women from different backgrounds, just all agreeing that, okay, you've been in group the last three weeks and you're saying the same shit over and over again. Like, What did that feel like? What did a light bulb turn on for you then? Yeah. And then w this girl came into group and she was younger and she was saying i don't respect my boyfriend he treats me like shit i'm going i'm but i'm selling all my furniture and i'm moving in and we're engaged and i'm like no no you heard your story come out of somebody else's mouth and, 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 so she was like a few weeks behind me in time frame so it was just really um nice to see that and then see progress of the other women in the group um did that turn a light bulb on for you when you heard somebody else describe it did that make it easier for you to see how insane y you're yeah. going going back and forth was there was there was like one moment where i was going to a festival and i was like yeah i think he might be there and there was a point where the moder the counselor moderator and she went around the room and said, Are you scared for her? Um, and they all were very scared for me. And I don't know just feeling like I can handle this. But it now I feel I, w I was in a scary situation. I'm scared to death of that person. To this day, are you scared? I don't... I would not want to be alone in a room with that person. And I, if I saw him, I would just walk away or try and get into public spaces. I wouldn't even trust him in a public space. What did it feel like when they went around the room and you saw that these people cared about you? What did you, what did you feel, if anything... Um, I felt, I felt like, wow, this is, this is more serious than I think, you know, I guess, I guess when it's, when it's on intervention and everyone <laughs> says, you're on crack and we're, <laughs> and we're scared for you. Yeah. It is crack. It's as deadly as crack. It and really is. I mean, I'm proud of myself because... I mean, I'm so happy I don't have a child with this person. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, that was like a horrible decision I never wanted to make. But I was talking to a friend and she's, she said, you know, your kid is like half of your partner and you're going to see your partner in that kid for the rest of your life. The good and the bad. I was just like, oh my god. So, do you do you feel today as if you have more tools in your belt to uh, not only recognize red flags but to set boundaries for uh, for yourself with people? Um, 
Yeah, I do. There's a little bit of a grimace. You, you made a little bit of a grimace when I, mean, I said that. I mean, it's hard to trust yourself. It's, it's I am, I feel ashamed that, that was, like, I just can't, like, I still, like, I have post-traumatic stress. Like, I've been through a lot in my life between the Mormonism and Hollywood and rape and all of this, you know, being on your own for so long to like have like I thought when you got older things got easier and you know yourself better and so it really made me be like I don't know what the fuck I'm doing like how did that happen how did that happen to me how is your relationship with your current boyfriend I mean I it's 100 million times better I've read so many books just so many books about dating, how to s- set boundaries. and Good. Um, and what book would you recommend uh, the most of the ones you read? Um, a book called, it's a breakup because it's broken. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a fucking date. That was a really good one. Because I feel like with, I was rebelling against the Mormonism. So I would be like, you're cute. And then go home with a dude and... I just had forgotten how to date. Mm-hmm. I was feeling, I feel like I got really predatory after my really long-term relationship broke up. I was just, I had to really focus on what am I putting out there? Cause I don't want to put out like crazy girl drama. I wasn't telling any new guys about all the drama and yeah, there's no better way to lure in a guy that loves crazy than to trauma bond on your first couple of dates. I'd be like, hey, there might be a guy who will come and kill you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mind him. He's just at the window knocking. Hi. Do you feel like you're in a good place uh, today? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I could write a movie about it. <laughs> I saw enough. It might have to be a lifetime movie. Oh my gosh! I saw uh, J Lo's Enough on <laughs> on the TV the other day, and I was like, "It's so crazy." Is there anything you'd like to share with the listener before uh, before we go? Share. Um, just you're worth it. You're worth being treated well, and you know what? It's better to be alone than to be like if you can just get. It's addiction, and if you can get through the first few months, or just block it, block it, his number. And if you if you find yourself unable to leave somebody who's who's hurting you, um, there's tons of resources. Um, I I called I called numbers. <laughs> yeah, I mean clearly you did. You got into that uh, support group that yeah. that helped you see how crazy it was. Just, and there are support groups for love addiction. There's support groups for domestic violence. For a good six, seven months, it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. There was something every day I was doing for myself to heal my injury or heal my mind. That's great. That's great. Well, Daisy, thank you uh, so much uh, for coming and sharing your story. Thank you. Many, many thanks uh, to her. And as I said, uh, that's a pseudonym that we used for her. And um, 
when I shot her an email asking for an update, um, we had recorded this episode a couple of years ago and, uh, and it just hadn't aired yet. And I asked her for an update and she is, uh, writes that she is currently living in Los Angeles. Um, she has a boyfriend. They're pregnant with a girl due in June. She's still DJing around LA and finishing shooting an indie movie called For Your Entertainment Only. And, um, she has not seen, um, her abuser since then. Uh, she was at a mall and, uh, saw him and she ducked into a store and uh, avoided having to, uh, uh, talk to him. And then she wrote, um, it's been so long that it would be safe to say my name. I'm part of a women's group and the therapist says I should become uh, a domestic violence advocate. Maybe this is the launch- launching pad to speak publicly on this. And uh, her name is C.C. Sheffield. So, um, I don't know, that just really moved me that um, she's she's claiming her story um, publicly. And it's not for everybody to, to do that. Um, so don't feel bad if, uh, if you're somebody that um, doesn't want to um, speak your story publicly. But, um, you know, it's, uh, I don't know. I just I love seeing people claim the power that has always been there, but we're too afraid to to take it because we either think it's selfish or we don't deserve it or or we don't know how or we don't believe it's there. But uh, many many thanks to uh, Cece, aka uh, Daisy. Before I read some surveys, I want to remind you guys there are a couple of different ways that you can support the podcast, and we do need your help. If you've noticed recently, there is not a lot of advertising. Um, the uh, algorithm they use to measure downloads changed, and apparently the uh, advertisers, at least for right now, aren't as interested in the podcast as they had been before. Um and so, yeah, it's uh, things are a little tight financially, and there's a couple of different ways you can help if you're so inclined. Uh, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, or my favorite, you can become a monthly donor through Patreon, um, and uh, you can become a donor for as little as a dollar a month. Um, and with Patreon, uh, because the interface is so much better than PayPal, I can um, give you guys free stuff, silly stuff, videos I make sometimes, or, you know, maybe bonus content uh, here or there. But it's a, it's really the bedrock that the podcast exists on. And um, we always need more monthly donors. So there's a link to it on the website. And it's uh, mentalpod, I'm sorry, patreon.com slash mentalpod. Um, and you can also support us non-financially by uh, going to iTunes, writing something nice, or actually it's Apple Podcasts, and writing something nice about the show, giving us a good rating, um, and spreading the word through social media about the podcast. That's a huge way to to help. Um, and you can also buy t-shirts through uh, our vendor, 
go to our, our website and we've got some great, some great shirts. One in particular I love, which is a picture of uh, my late dog, Herbert, and it says St. Herbert on it. And it's a really cute picture of his face. Um, let's get to some surveys. This is, um, we did this one already. Hold on. This one is, uh, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Bay. And she writes, four years ago, I was having a conversation with my brother. He was studying Islamic theology and is very religious. I asked him, is it true that within Islam, homosexuality is seen as a mental illness? Uh, and in parentheses, I heard that from someone in school. My brother, an imam, an Islamic person, looked me dead in the eye and said, never ever say something like that again. Homosexuality is not an illness and a religious person does not get to judge or hate based on what they think is a sin. Don't ever be hateful towards your fellow humans. We are all equal. The fact that I think of something as a sin doesn't make it a sin for other people. It made me so happy and connected to him. He told me never force your religion upon anyone. If someone is interested, they'll come to you. But other than that, just let them be. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Um, this is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself a love supreme. Great, great album. Um, I never got John Coltrane until I started woodworking and I had it on um, for long stretches of time. And then I suddenly understood what was so amazing about him is he, at least for me there's like a hypnotic effect to his music when you listen to it for long stretches that it's it's um i mean woodworking to begin with is meditative but his his music to me was the musical equivalent of losing yourself in a hobby or something that where you were you're just kind of taken away to another another plane. Anyway, I digress. Getting back to um, a Love Supreme's survey. He writes, Last year, my boyfriend introduced me to the movie Scarface. I absolutely loved it. It was one of those movies that just really grabbed me and I was instantly hooked. I bought posters and every video format of the movie. VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, and digital 4K. Then one of my favorite clothing brands did a collab with them and had a Scarface leather jacket. That's in all caps. The line was going to be released mid-October. The day the line was available for release, I missed out on my most wanted item, a leather jacket with the split black and white Scarface cover on the front. There were only 75 made. On October 22nd, my boyfriend died after being hit by a drunk driver. He was 21 and was coming to my house where we lived together. His parents came to the house, and after going through his stuff, I found the jacket with a note attached to it. It said, You know what I'm talking about, you fucking cockroach? My birthday was on Halloween, and he had bought it knowing how much I wanted that piece. This comforted me, and I began sobbing. Unbeknownst to me, I had been standing there staring at the jacket and crying in front of his parents for 15 minutes. They embraced me, and we continued clearing out his stuff. That is 
That is Hall of Fame awfulsome moment. For those of you that are new to the podcast, it's something that's awful and awesome at the same time. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself, I'm just going to steal Diogenes. I have no idea what Diogenes are. Um, is she that brand of Greek yogurt, Diogenes? Is her porn name Lumpy Yogurt? Uh, di- or <laughs> I'm just going to steal Diogenes' writes uh, about his depression. Nothing sounds fun, but I hate doing nothing too. Oh, that's so good. Uh, about his anxiety. Is it rude if I move down one seat just to be uh, a full chair's length away from all people? No, that's just smart. <laughs> that is just, I sometimes I will go an entire room away from people. Um, oh, yeah. There is nothing more fucked upedly comforting about moving away from a group of people, maybe a loud party, and finding a chair where it's quiet, like a hundred yards away from everybody. That to me is it's like getting in a jacuzzi. Um Dead Man Walking filled out a shame and secret survey and he writes, uh let's see, some stuff about him. He's uh bisexual in his thirty 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, and the, uh, as I've mentioned many times before, uh, the small collection of shame and secret surveys that I read um, to choose from every week is um, read through maybe 10 surveys. And there's always some similarity between a couple of surveys, and that's what I choose to read. And the, the similarity between the two I picked this month are they are um, one is a man the other is a woman and they are both in marriages where their partner um, doesn't know that they are bisexual Um, and so let's see ever been the victim of sexual abuse and he writes um, some stuff happened but I don't know if it counts Uh, my uncle exposed himself to me at a young age not sure if anything else happened uh, he writes that he's never been emotionally or physically abused. Uh, darkest thoughts. Having sex with my brother-in-law in in the church he pastors, either forcing him or mutual. Darkest secrets. When I was in the military at my first training base, uh, after basic, I would sneak in my roommate's laundry bag, grab his underwear, wear them, smell them, jack off, all the while with the potential of getting caught by him. Um... Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, Group sex with both of my brother-in-laws, them forcing me to. Uh, Me and a random guy in a gym, shower, slash locker room. Uh, How do you feel sharing that? Uh, No different, really. Uh, What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could go back and let myself know all that's happened since getting married. Would I not get married? I don't know. Would I change anything? Definitely a few things to save a lot of headache and hardship between my wife and her family. Um, Have you shared these things with others? No. I play the part of a married straight man very well. Married straight men are not supposed to have fantasies or thoughts such as these. My Pentecostal slash Baptist slash whatever denomination they are now in-laws 
would have a holy fucking fit. Although we have talked before on a small degree about my sexuality, my wife wouldn't be able to handle knowing this. How do you feel after writing these things down? Normal. Thank you for, uh, thank you for sharing that. And, um, man, something that just bums me out so much is when I read surveys by people who are denying living their authentic life because it's too scary for them to claim that authenticity publicly. They're afraid of other people being upset or whatever, their reaction, whatever it may be. And I understand it. I understand caring too much about what other people think or them being upset. Um, but it's, it's hard, it's hard to see because you know how much that person has compartmentalized a, an important part of themselves that, that is their authentic self and, and yeah. Sending you some love, man. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself no showers, only dry shampoo. And um, in describing her depression, she writes, like holding your head underwater, everything from vision to sound to physical awareness is impaired, but for some reason, you find a strange comfort in it. That is so good. That is so so spot on oh my god that odd comfort what is it it's all it's almost like like i've always found comfort in uh for lack of a better word like nesting you know getting under a pile of blankets or um you know maybe laying on the floor of a of a walk-in closet, a carpeted walk-in closet, and you shut the door, and it's just, I don't know. It's like a, is it a safety thing? Is it a um, womb? Is it trying to go back to the womb? What is it exactly? But there is this depression almost seems like the emotional version of going into a walk-in closet with a really fluffy carpet and yeah, it kind of sucks that you're not getting anything done, but it's so, there's such a safety in making your life small when you're stuck in depression. Uh, snapshot from her life. I've always felt like I've had depression, but was never able to identify it. In the past year, I've felt more depressed than ever. I haven't been able to keep a true friend around for more than four months, and I felt nothing but complete hopelessness when thinking of where I'm going in life. I'm 18 years old. I've always thought that I kept those, these feelings hidden from the public eye, but recently an event occurred that led me to believe otherwise. The other day, I wanted to light a candle in my room but couldn't find a lighter, so I asked my mother if she could give me one of hers. Her response was, I don't trust you with it. I don't want you to burn the house down with me in it. I was surprised by her response and thought it was a joke, so I asked her what would make her think I would want to do that. She responded, oh, you know, because you're always acting mopey and sad like you want to kill yourself. It was in that moment that I decided, A, I desperately needed my own place, and B, I needed to get therapy. Good for you. Good for you, man. 
That is, I mean, it is so sad that that, those are the tools that your mother is equipped with to deal with a child who is experiencing what you are. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by um, a woman who calls herself British, and it's G-I-E-L. Did she mean to, to type gal, or is G-L a, a word? I'm, I'm coming across a lot of words I don't know. Uh, she is in her 20s, uh, identifies as pansexual, uh, says she was raised in a stable and safe environment, ever been the victim of sexual abuse, uh, multiple times, uh, one that she never reported and one that she did report. She writes, I was raped by my father when I was a teenager, twice. This, to me, speaks of how much we want to believe that things weren't that bad, that she described the environment that she was raised in as stable and safe when she had a father who raped her. Um, I was groomed by a teacher at school. I was also raped by a cousin when I was passed out drunk. Reported the first one and the police decided not to prosecute based on the fact I was in a relationship with my teacher. You know, if they knew anything about uh, sexual trauma, they wouldn't be calling it a relationship um, because, yeah, anyway, continuing. Never bothered with the third one. By that point, I thought I'd never report a crime ever again. She's been emotionally abused. Uh, don't want to say because it would be too easy to identify me as the abuser listens to your podcast. Um, any positive experiences with the abuser? Uh, absolutely. I still try and have a relationship with my dad. Also, confusing is that my whole family blamed me for it. I have had a lot of therapy, so I am now in a place where I accept what happened and that it's okay for me to still want a dad. Darkest thoughts, uh, that I'm gay. It's really hard for me to tell people. I tell everyone I'm bisexual, but choosing to be in a heterosexual relationship, but really I'm scared of what my parents will think. Isn't that amazing that she is afraid of what her father will think? And he raped her. That, that, that is the power of wanting our parents' approval. That's how deep it goes. You know, and I'm not saying everyone is like her, but I, th- I think her feelings are probably pretty universal um, and just so badly wanting to salvage a, a relationship out of something and the fear of being rejected. Um, uh, darkest Secrets. My mom used to have sex with her boyfriend in our shared bedroom when she thought I was asleep, but I could hear everything. Every night, I would turn my sofa bed round so she knew that I knew, but she just carried on. That is a form of sexual abuse. That absolutely is. Exposing your child to sexual things that um, you should be keeping in private um, is a form of sexual abuse. 
Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Just being with a woman makes me sad to say that. I feel so sad for myself. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To tell my boyfriend that I'm gay and I just want him to be my friend and never leave me. Um, have you shared these things with others? No, it's hard enough to admit it to myself. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel sad. Uh, anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Please see a therapist. I had no idea how affected I was by everything that happened in my life. I had PTSD, as you can imagine, and EMDR massively helped me get through that. Please see a therapist, and if it's not right, try another one, please. Thank you for sharing all of that stuff, and you sound like such a sweet person. Uh, I, I really hope that you can you can get to the place where you claim your authenticity and trust that these other people who are adults will be able to survive whatever your choices are. Because if they truly love you, these people, they will want you to lead an authentic life. They will want you to be happy no matter what their role in your life is. Um, and And... I believe they'll they'll come around. You know, change always freaks people out, but it's amazing what time can heal. And if not, it doesn't matter because this is about you claiming your power and your authenticity. And I'd like to say authenticity now for the ninth time. Authenticity. And finally, this is a happy moment uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself trying to avoid being on hoarders. Maybe one of the best names ever. Um, she writes, I'm taking some time off uh, of work to deal with my depression. I'm getting referrals and assessments for programs and all that good stuff. And the fallout from my depression, which is my messy, messy apartment. I always relate when you talk about your mail piling up. I have two boxes of mail I never opened at my last apartment that I didn't know what to do with, so I packed them, and they are sitting next to the shredder I ordered off Amazon a year ago, which is still in the box it came in and piled up with more recent mail. I know, not great. People have been kind of rude about it, like, why don't you just clean or just decide to do something and do it? Or my personal favorite, I just couldn't live like that. Well, maybe that's why I think about stepping in front of a train 10 times a day, but thanks for your input. This afternoon, I was shuffling things around and trying to clean my bathroom when my friend showed up. She handed me a coffee and brought in a frozen lasagna. She sat on my floor and shredded all my mail and then took the shred bags out to the recycling. She made dinner and we ate together. I haven't been eating much lately, so this was amazing. She offered to come back later uh, in the week to see how things are going and help out some more. Another work friend has been texting me sweet, encouraging messages every day to let me know that she's thinking of me and that if I need anything to let her know. I'm obviously still a long way from being okay, but the fact that someone came and took care of a shitty and overwhelming task without judging means so much to me. My brain still wants to focus on all the rude shit people say about my depression, but I'm going to really try and remember how kind and selfless people can be too. Man, I love that. I fucking love that. We don't, we don't get enough of these in our daily life. 
I think that's why we watch cat videos on YouTube. Um, yeah. Thank you guys for your surveys. And anybody out there, you feel like you're struggling, your brain's probably telling you that you're alone and that there's things are never going to get better, and those are all lies. Those are all lies. Um, in my experience, things can get better, but it takes a concerted effort, and it usually involves asking for help, and it's scary, uh, but it's never as scary in reality as it is in our brain, which uh, tends to catastrophize things, or at least mine did, and I'm so glad I asked for help because um, I get to have this amazing life that I have carved out for myself. And I would miss out on hearing all of your stories, reading your surveys, um, meeting some of you in person, doing live podcasts, and, and getting to do something that I love. And not only that I love, but where I have been able to draw upon all the quote-unquote shitty things I've been through in my life and have them be a source to connect to other people instead of just something that was unfortunate or tragic. Um, so hang in there and um, never forget that you are not alone and uh, help help is out there. Um, and thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way.